is that not a cool intro or what? I mean, come on, man. Numbers is rad. My man, Don Barnett, uh, one of our own here, put that together. And I'm like, that is so cool. Now can what Matt does live up to the coolness of that bumper? All right. That is really the big question, right? And I get you, right? I understand. Like when you hear we're doing numbers as a series at church, you're like, Meh, I've tried to read numbers, dude. Is this really going to be a thing that we can do? I feel the problem, man. I get it. I mean, automatically, as soon as you even hear the title, it's like, numbers? Really? That's the best they could come up with, right? Like, if you decide to do a, a, an annual reading of the Bible, you're like, all right, it's January. I've never read the Bible from cover to cover. I'm going to do it. You start with Genesis, right? Origin story stuff. I mean, it's a great title for a great concept. Then you move into Exodus, and Exodus is like a jailbreak, you know? And like, that's exciting. I like jailbreaks. Then you move to Leviticus, and you're like, okay, that's a weird book, dude. It's got a lot of laws, a lot of rules. It's a name that I don't fully understand, but it's kind of fun to read because you're like, okay, here's some things that I can, I can apply from Leviticus. Don't eat bats. Okay, I'm not going to eat a bat. I can do that. I'm cool with that. Talks about grooming like a hipster. It says, don't get a tattoo if you're on your way to a tarot card reading. All of that's kind of like in Leviticus. It can be fun to read, right? And the core of Leviticus is loving your neighbor. So there's cool stuff there. But then you get to numbers, right? It's like, it feels like a snooze fest, you know? And, and even that title feels lazy in some ways. Because, like, the titles of the books of the Bible were kind of added later, right? And so maybe you kind of picture, like, these two people are, like, at the Bible Compilation Society, like, 2,500 years ago or whatever it is. And they're like, man, what do we call it? Dude's like, I don't know, man. I'm reading this fourth book, and it, I fell asleep. It's like counting sheep. I don't know. What should we call it? I don't know. There's a lot of numbers in it. Let's call it numbers. Sweet. And they just kind of scroll it at the top. We're going to call it numbers. In fact, if anything, what I find when we do our annual Bible readings is that oftentimes this is the book where your Bible reading goes to die, right? Like you're, oh, so good, I'm going, I've gotten to March, nearing tax season, it's numbers, flippity, 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 go on to Deuteronomy and just keep rolling, right? That's the tendency and the temptation. And I totally get it, why numbers doesn't get a lot of love. But here is the thing I believe. I believe that much of the problem is that we haven't been taught how to read numbers well. We haven't been taught how to get up over the top of this to see the patterns and the picture that's there, and then from that to apply some of the life lessons and the storytelling that really gets to the core of life. I believe all of that is in that book. And so for the next five weeks, yes, only five weeks, we're going to do the impossible. We're going to try to make numbers interesting, all right? And yet, I think it's fascinating. I love the book of Numbers. I love this whole landscape of this part of the Old Testament. And I think there are many things that we will find pattern our own lives as we go. Now, before we get underway, I want to remind you we have an app with notes if you want to follow along today. And then also, I want to let you know slash remind you, uh, you'll notice that today Pastor Trent wasn't up here. And that is because Pastor Trent is on sabbatical right now. He and his wife, Ella, are on a three-month kind of whirlwind tour around different parts of the United States, meeting with ministry leaders, seeing old friends, seeing their kids, all kinds of great stuff. And so it's a time of rest, reflection, rejuvenation, and then coming back here just near Easter uh, to kind of reinsert and everything else. And so you want to keep them in your prayers as they're on the sabbatical. We're going to pray for them this morning as well. And so we're praying for our attentiveness to numbers. We're praying for our good friend and pastor who's on sabbatical, and we're praying for us, man, to apply what it is God has for our lives. And so right now, if you would join me with prayer, 
fantastic. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that as you were guiding your church to compile your scripture, you said numbers matters. It's mattered since the inception of your people, and I pray that your people still today dig and sift and attempt to understand the lessons it has for us. And so we look to you to show us and guide us and teach us Jesus, and we are excited for the prospect that is before us. So we thank you, and we look to you now. We pray for Pastor Trent and Ella as they're on their trip as well, that they are, again, refreshed, strengthened, lots of great conversations, and you would bless them and bless us as a church. Bless the teams that are stepping in for, for Trent during this time. May all of us really just sense you in this season. And so we thank you, and we praise you in your good name. Amen. Okay, so we need to get down to numbers. And if you're going to get the book of numbers, you've got to get the neighborhood that numbers is actually nestled in. And that neighborhood is the very front of your Bible, those first five books. Now, in our Western Greek kind of oriented background, what we have called this for a very long time is the Pentateuch. Fancy word, Pentateuch. Penta means five, like pentagon, pentagram, Pastor shouldn't talk about a pentagram on Sunday morning, but you get the idea. All right, so penta, and then tukis, not your dairy air, but tukis means scrolls. So penta tuk is five scrolls. That's our Greek tradition. But in the Hebrew tradition, it's a little bit different. They don't call it the Pentateuch because, again, that's our language. Their language was Hebrew. And in the Hebrew language, these first five books are called the Torah, which I really favor that because it sounds Klingon or tough or something like that, right? So the Torah is this idea of instruction or law. And the Torah is, in essence, the works of Moses. In fact, we have a kind of a picture here of the works of Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are a package deal. This is kind of like a collection that's important for us to understand that they all lock together. They're trying to tell an ultimate story. Now, when it comes to these works of Moses, I'm going to give you a little bit of seminary teaching today as well. Um, we're never quite sure if this works of Moses means Moses penned these works, or these works are penned in relationship to Moses and discussing his life, his actions, the things leading up to Moses and the Exodus and everything else. We're, we're not quite sure, and here's the reason for that. In one sense, we've kind of kind of held the tradition that he penned these things but if he did he spoke a lot in third person and then Moses did this and Moses did that and Moses went here and Moses went there and occasionally then would brag about himself pretty heavily Moses was the most kind generous thoughtful humble and godly man of his generation I'm like okay maybe somebody else wrote that about Moses because if Moses wrote that about himself I'm like ah do you write that about yourself like if I on my blog wrote Matt Boswell is the most kind, generous, gracious, astounding leader of his generation. You'd be like, we're going to find another church, right? Like, do you brag about yourself that way? Well, because it's third person, maybe this is kind of somebody writing about Moses, reflecting all the things that he was doing and moving forward. The other reason we kind of wonder if Moses actually wrote it is it records his death, and it's pretty tough to record your death when you're dead, right? So for all of that, we go, hey, regardless if he wrote it or it's written about him, this is about that season of Israel's history where he is at the lead. God has anointed him as the leader of his people to go and do a pretty impressive thing. And when it comes then to numbers specifically, what this content is all about is the number 40. 
40 is a strategic number in the book of Numbers because it represents the time period that we are dealing with in Israel's history. Now, if you've been to Sunday school or you're sort of aware, aware of the Bible stories, 40 years is that wandering in the desert for the people of Israel as they've left Egypt in slavery. They're going to their ancestral home. There's this big span of four decades. Those four decades are only recorded, catch me, are only recorded in the book of Numbers. So one of the things you want to understand automatically about the Torah is that Exodus kind of catches about the first year of all of that. So from the time that like, it's like, let my people go and everything else, uh, the end of Exodus, that's one year. Numbers is four decades. And then Deuteronomy is like six months in the story. So when we talk about that 40-year thing and we think about all the stories in the 40 years, it's all inside the book of Numbers. And so that endless slog of four decades out there in kitty litter and coyotes, Numbers, right? That's in the wilderness. And that kind of takes us to the next thing, the name of this book. Again, in the Greek tradition, a couple of people sat down and said, what should we call it? And they said, well, let's call it arithmoi, where we get the word arithmetic. Because it has a census, there's numbers in the first handful of chapters, and that just made sense. But in the Jewish tradition, they called this B-Midbar. And B-Midbar means into the wilderness or in the wilderness. And I think that's a way better title, right? Because when I think about life, life is kind of like that existentially. There are times in life where you are just thrust out into the desert, out into the barren reaches, right? And it's in that space that life lessons are learned. It's out in the desert of life at times where you are tempted, you are tested, you are broken, you are built up, and you are bettered because you are in that space. Character is forged there. Wisdom is grown there. Uh, a sense of grace for life. It manifests when you're put out into those places. You face the hardship and you grow from it. In fact, when we get to the Gospels, you see that Jesus was tempted for 40 days, and that is meant to be kind of this echo of the 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus goes 40 days in the wilderness, just as Israel was 40 years in the wilderness. The difference is that Israel would be tempted and fail where Jesus was tempted and succeeds. So he is a truer, better Israel in that sense. But it reminds us of that life lesson that when you're out in those spaces, that's where God can work. But I would add to this that God works in those spaces of our life, those hardship, suffering, pain moments if we allow it to do the work. In other words, there's times where you might end up in the wilderness of life and you don't receive what God is teaching you. You don't want to learn from it. You don't want to grow from it. You want to be resentful. You want to be bitter. You want to be angry. You want to complain. <gasps> That's the book of Numbers. Where there's going to be that. God gives them an opportunity for their growth, but in that boy, they sometimes recess and make mistakes and do some dumb stuff and get real bitter in the process. All of that is the lesson to be learned. And so there is value for us because, man, life is so often lived in the wilds of life. So, let's try to get this a little bit more. We're going to kind of go to the 30,000-foot level, and we're going to survey this neighborhood for just a minute because you've got to understand how these pieces are fitting together. Because what we've done as a church over the last few years is we've been, we've been going through the Torah, right? So we've done Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. But if you're new to this with us, and you're starting in numbers, it's like coming into the middle of a movie, right? So you're like, I don't know, the car's going backwards, there's bullet holes, it's missing a door, she's screaming, he's freaking out. Like, you're like, what's going on in this movie? 
And if you just enter into numbers, you're like, I don't know what's going on in the movie. So we have to understand a little bit more of the movie. And so we've created a bit of a set of diagrams here so you can understand maybe the placement of what's happening. So in kind of act one of the play, it was the Exodus. And where kind of things are going to pick up for us is right there at the base of Mount Sinai. So we're in the wilds of Sinai. Moses has gone to Pharaoh and gone all Heston, let my people go. And then there was 10 wacky plagues, and then all of Pharaoh's armies done the dead man float in the Red Sea. And now they're at Sinai. And they're there, and they're learning, and they're growing. And in that space, there's some dumb stuff that goes down, right? So they kind of worship this Beelzebubish bovine, this golden calf, and that creates a mess, and people die, and it's an ugly scene and everything else. But it's there that God says, no, I'm committed to Israel. And so there at that space in Mount Sinai, he says, all right, I'm going to make a covenant with you. A covenant is a pledge of love and loyalty. So God says, all right, I'm making the covenant. Then with that, in light of the covenant, I'm giving the commandments. So we get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and we get the book of Leviticus, which is like 247 different laws, all related to loving your neighbor as a holy people. That's the essence of Leviticus. And Leviticus is compiled while there in the wilds of Mount Sinai. So that happens in that space. Also there at that time, they established this idea of the tabernacle, which is this big tent structure where God shows up and resides with his people in that space. And then also during this time, they receive this idea of instructions to build an ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Right now you want to go because Indiana Jones goes for that a long time later, all right? So that's the ark. And, and all of this has symbolism. Right? The ark is about the leadership of God. The tabernacle is about the presence of God. The commands are about the, the law of God. And the, the kind of this idea of covenant is all about the love of God. It's all there at the beginning of the story, right? But then as Exodus 40 ends, God's presence descends on the tabernacle. Jump Leviticus, because that was dealt with inside the book of Exodus. And you go straight to Numbers chapter 1. That's where the story starts, right? So we end Exodus 40. We bounce into Numbers chapter 1. And the book of Numbers then has a structure. So it has three locations. The first is, hey, the starting point. It's Mount Sinai. And then you have this middle space, which is Paran. And then you have this final place, which is Moab. All of this is out in the wild, but these are their three spaces, right? So you're getting a sense of this is how the journey is going to be. There at Mount Sinai, for the first 10 chapters of Numbers, that's like three weeks. That's it. Just three weeks, 21 days. Paran, long time, all right? And then Moab's going to be like six months before they go into their ancestral home. Then between these three spaces, road trip, right? Big, long, crazy road trips that they're going to be on during this entire time. And so we pick up in the first 10, 11-ish chapters as we look at the census, the camp, and the commute of God, all of which are going to happen in a three-week time period again. I want to be clear. Like, this first third of the book is just, just a few weeks. That's it. So we've got all the pieces together. We know that their job is to go to their ancestral home. They're ready to roll. There's a bunch of natural, natural resources there. But there's also going to be the need for a military campaign. They can't just walk in and take their old home back. Other people have come and planted themselves there in the midst of that. So God's like, we need to build an army. And if you're going to build an army, you need to start with the census for God. Right? Census. Start taking a head count of who's there. So starting in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. 
A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle, big worship space, right? In the wilderness of Sinai. On the first day of the second month of that year, he said, from the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their clans and families, list all the men 20 years old and older who are able to go to war. You and Aaron must register the troops and you must be assisted by one of the leaders from each of the tribes. So Moses and Aaron called together all the chosen leaders and they assembled the whole community of Israel on that very day. All the people who were registered, they were registered according to their ancestry by their clans and families. The men of Israel who were 20 years old and older, they were listed one by one, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Moses recorded their names in the wilderness of Sinai. So all of those numbers that you read have a purpose. And much of that purpose is we need to build an army. And it's a sophisticated and advanced army, right? They've got officers, they've got enlisted, they've got all the structure, all the stuff in place because they know what they're going into. They know it's going to be a challenging season. And so you got to count the cost if you're ready to do this whole thing of going back and taking your home. But I'm sure for the camp, they're excited, right? I'm sure like all these, these men are like, man, we just saw what God did in Egypt and now we're going to Canaan. This is going to be awesome. Miracle stuff, crazy special effects galore. We're going to take our home back. So they're just getting pumped up, I'm sure, in the camp, ready for this big, epic journey. They're doing the Krav Maga, right? Because that's what good Israelis do. They're learning their fighting style. Like some cultures, they have uh, Molotov cocktails. These guys, they have Mazel Tov cocktails. They're ready to fight, right? They know what they're doing. They're going to wipe the desert with the schmutz of their enemies, man. These are good Israeli soldiers. But there's one group that's exempt from the count. It says, but this total did not include the Levites. For the Lord had said to Moses, do not include the tribe of Levi in the registration. Do not count them with the rest of the tribes. Now this is interesting because you might think, well, shouldn't you have every sword available? Every fighting man should be a part of the count. Why cut these guys out? Well, one of the things you're going to see is a pattern, and I think this is important for our lives as well, but the practical and military success of the people of God, the army of God, is going to be predicated on the spiritual health of the camp of God. So if the camp, if the people are not spiritually healthy, then all of their practical endeavors will fail which I do think is a lesson for us. We do a lot of practical endeavors in life, but if we are spiritually unhealthy, we will not be really fit to deal with the practical endeavors that are before us. And so God puts together the census, and the census says we're going to set aside the Levites. Why? To protect the camp of God. And so having moved from the census, we go to the camp. And the camp is not an average camp. Like I was talking about earlier, we see in Numbers chapter 5, that God describes it as the place where his presence dwells among his people. And that place, again, is this image of a tabernacle right here, right? It's kind of tough to see, but basically it's this big tent, and then it's outlined by this outer wall, and that is like God's sacred space. That is a reminder that God is central to all that they do. And this tabernacle, it's meant to be like a recreation of Eden. In fact, when you look at the the imagery and the tapestry of the space, it looks like Eden. And you want to remember that then symbolically what God is saying is this is the epicenter of where the world transformation begins. This is the place where the people of God think like God, act like God, love God, obey God, seek to bring flourishing to the nations because that's the promise to Abraham. 
that through this group of people, God will transform all the world. He will go to the four corners with this group of people to bring life and love and joy and peace and hope and completeness and restoration. That's what this camp represents. And God in the middle of that camp represents those very kinds of things. But to ensure this happens, you have to monitor that space. Because if these people are to be a holy people for a holy God, here's the reality about holiness. It's hard to maintain. Our nature wants to go against it, and so God creates the Levites, and the Levites are like the cops and caretakers of the camp. That's their job. God says, put the Levites in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant along with all of its furnishing and furnishings and equipment. They must take care of it, and they must camp around it. And so you start to see a scene unfold. Each tribe of Israel will camp in a designated area with its own family banner. So like each crest of a banner is over it. I think that's really cool as a Scotsman. Why not? So... It says, when the Israelites set up camp, each tribe will be assigned its own area. The tribal divisions will camp beneath their family banners, all on four different sides, but all at a distance away from the tabernacle. Then the Levites will camp around the tabernacle of the covenant to protect the community of Israel from the Lord's anger. If you do something dumb, God will swat you for it. That's the, pr the principle there. And then it says the Levites are responsible to stand guard around the tabernacle. Any unauthorized person who goes too near the tabernacle must be put to death. That's kind of intense. But what it does is it establishes for the people reverence. It's reverence, right? So they have to think about where God resides and what the space is. And they go, wait, we're the people of God and that is the God of the people. And we want to approach him and treat him with the highest reverence possible. And so everything is very structured, there's rules, there's regulations, and what it does, in essence, is it immerses them in a concept. Everywhere they look, everything they do, everything that's a part of the camp is reminding them of purity, impurity, holiness, the absence thereof, what it means to be different in a world that wants to be the same. Right? That's your camp scene here in Numbers. And so if we want to understand then how the camp literally structures out, we have the tabernacle that's there in the middle. Surrounding the tabernacle, we have Levites on three sides, and then we have Moses, Aaron, the core leadership on the east side. You ever notice how in the Abrahamic religions they love the east? Like the Muslims, they, they bow to the east and they pray toward Mecca. Well, this comes back from their Jewish roots where the sun rises in the east and the light pierces the darkness, and so the leaders are to the east to represent that concept. And then from there... The tribes are structured. So Judah's right next to the leaders. Benjamin's on the tail end of the other side. But it's interesting that it lays out as a cross in the desert. It's so cool that there's already foreshadowing of the way God structures this is like a cross in the desert to change the world. And so Israel kind of lines up in this cross formation. And that's the way the camp is structured. God's at the center. Everything fans out to go to the four corners and change everything. Now, from chapter 3 to chapter 9, a number of things happen, right? Just going to bust it out really quick. This is about the camp of God's presence and God's purity. And so there's a handful of things that just kind of record out what God does with Levites and everything else. What you need to know for this section, again, is he's just anchoring purity versus impurity. And as we'll see later, not everything that is impure is sin, but anything that's impure reminds us of sin and the need for purity. So God just wants to, again, keep these people immersed in all of these tangible examples of how they're to be different. 
And so this all comes together in chapters 3 through 9. And so what you basically have is the priests who maintain purity to ensure the presence of God. Because, again, this is to be a redeemed people, and so they're to live and act like a redeemed people. Now keep in mind, this has all been three weeks. It's been a busy, busy three weeks. But here's the headline you need to know about these three weeks, about these nine to ten chapters. There's a phrase that gets repeated often in this section. Here's the phrase. In some iteration, it's basically the same. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. What? Have you read about the Israelites? They're a bunch of knuckleheads, man. They never write. They're always messing it up, going the wrong way, doing the wrong thing, whatever it is. But here, man, they're on it. These three weeks are solid. But here's the way I look at this. Remember what it said in Exodus. It said, after a year, uh, they're getting ready to head out. Now, this is the getting ready to head out going into year two. This is their version of January, all right? And you know how January is for all of us. There's like resolutions, there's new decisions that you make, and so you're like, all right, it's a new year, I'm gonna save more, I'm gonna savor my time more, I'm gonna slim down, strengthen up, we have all these agendas, and for the first three weeks, it goes pretty good. Going to the gym, not going out as much, making some real conscientious decisions and everything else, but boy, after about three weeks, things begin to slide. And for Israel, They've been camped out at Sinai. God's presence has been on the mountain. Now it's come down into the camp. They're still engaged in all their basic training. They're getting ready for the road trip. But here's what hasn't happened. They, that hasn't happened. All right. What hasn't happened is they are yet to pile the whole family into the family truckster and go to Wally World. That has not happened yet. They have not decided to actually undertake the endeavor. They're just getting ready. But once they go, here's how simple this is. From where they're at to where they're going, it's like a two to three, three week trip. That's it. As you travel, right, just on foot, it's a very short distance from Sinai to their ancestral home, the promised land. So it's not a big deal as far as road time, but it's not gonna shape up in the way they think. But they're ready to go. They're getting ready to hop into the car. It's time for the road trip. And so they go on the commute with God. But this commute has a process. And then in this process, man, there is some cool, like, special effects that are going to happen with the process. So here's how it starts to roll out. We know the Levites are in charge of the tabernacle, right? All the furnishings, all the equipment. says they must carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings as they travel. They must take care of it, and they must camp around it. Whenever it's time for the tabernacle to move, the Levites will take it down, and whenever it's time to stop, they're going to set it up again. That's a big structure. It's like a football field-sized thing that they're going to have to do this with. But then the question is, well, who decides when they travel? Is it Moses? Is it Aaron? Is it the Levites? Is it the people? How do you know when it's time to go wheels up and roll? Well, here you go. And this is kind of a chunk, but track with it. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. And when you read the cloud, it's like the Ohio State. It's like that. The cloud. It's not just any cloud. It's the cloud that was on Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments and spoke to Moses that's now come down to reside over the tabernacle in the camp. That's the cloud. It's God's symbolism of himself. So on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. But from evening until morning, the cloud over the tabernacle, it looked more like a pillar of fire. And this was the regular pattern. At night, the cloud that covered the tabernacle, it appeared as fire. So, 
Whenever the cloud lifted over the sacred tent, the people of Israel would break camp and follow it. And whenever the cloud settled, the people of Israel would set up camp. In this way, they traveled and camped at the Lord's command whenever he told them to go. So who decides when they roll? God decides when they roll. And it's real easy. It's like, oh, that's moving. Time to go, right? That's what we understand. So, then they remained in the camp as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. If the cloud remained over the tabernacle for a long time, the Israelites stayed to perform their duties to the Lord. Sometimes the cloud would stay over the tabernacle for only a few days. So the people would stay only a few days as the Lord commanded. Then at the Lord's command, they would break camp and they would move on. Sometimes the cloud stayed overnight and then lifted the next morning. But day or night, when the cloud lifted, the people broke camp and moved on. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle two days, a month, a year, the people of Israel stayed in the camp and they did not move. But as soon as it lifted, they broke camp and they moved on. So they camped or traveled at the Lord's command, and they did whatever the Lord told them to do through Moses. Now, I know that was a slog, but when I read that, the first thing I think is, I've done family camping before. That would be a drag. Imagine taking your whole family, not just like your kids, but your kids, your grandkids, your aunts, uncles, grandparents, everything else, and you're going to go on a backpacking trip in the Cascades for 40 years, right? And then in that, like sometimes you're like, okay, we set up the kitchen, we set up the solar shower, we got all the tents set up, and tomorrow we're breaking down and leaving again. And doing that week in, week out, year in, year out, man, that would be fatiguing. But that's the scene, right? But I just think about that. Like, again, think about the structure of the camp. That's a, that's a big swath of space, right? When you start to do the numbers and numbers, there's a lot of debate about how we should understand the numbers. But however we look at it, it's a giant population out there in the desert. And they have to structure every time they set up like this. And then when the cloud or the pillar of fire moves or whatever else, they're like, okay, now we've got to tear it down. And they have to align in this order. So the pillar of fire and smoke, it's going to go ahead of them. Then there's the Ark of the Covenant, which is like God's mobile home, right? So he rolls with the mobile home. It's at the front. The Levites are carrying it and walking behind it. Then the leaders are there, and then all these tribes, right? And they have to align, just like back in elementary school, where it's like, all right, shh, shh, get in line. Everybody quiet, right? Imagine assembling tens of thousands of people on a, on a morning's notice, and then you roll, and then that night's like, okay, we're going to stop. You're like, okay, break camp, form the big cross again. And then the next morning, oh, it's moving again. God's moving again. Right? That's going to be their reality. But you get a sense of the structure. So when the camp stops, God is central. When the camp moves, God is leader. What does it teach them every single time they move and stop and move and stop? God is your center. God is your leader. Right? You want to follow his cues, do his thing, go where he's going, because there is blessing there. You may not always understand where he's going, what he's doing, but keep him centered, let him lead, and there will be blessing. And so they have all this instruction, and finally it's time to pull the pegs. So, so in the second year after Israel's departure from Egypt, on the 12th day of the second month, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle of the covenant. So the Israelites set out from the wilderness to Sinai road trip, finally. Right? After a year and a few weeks, they're on the road. And it says they marched for three days after leaving the mountain of the Lord with the ark of the Lord's covenant moving ahead of them to show them where they needed to stop and rest. 
And so I'm sure as they get underway, there's excitement, there's enthusiasm, there's passion, there's bewilderment, there's bonding and brotherhood, and all of this stuff is kind of rolling together because this is a cool time. But here's what this reminds me of. Family road trips, right? Like anytime you take a road trip as a family, man, it starts awesome. Mom's made snacks. You're in the back seat. You're playing slug bug. It's so cool. You're stopping at restaurants and you're ordering your favorite food. You're checking out a new hotel, swimming in the pool. It's so much fun for like the first three days. But then like day four comes in, kids start arguing in the back seat. Judah hit me. No, it was Reuben. Reuben started it. No, it was Dan. Dan did it. No, Reuben did it. It's always Reuben. Everybody knows since the Genesis, Reuben's the jerk, right? So like all that fighting. And the God's like, oh, I'm going to pull this car over. I'm going to teach you all. You know, like all of that, all of that is kind of building into this whole thing, right? That's what happens on a road trip. And so chapter 10, we're on the roll. Three days in, chapter 11, verse 1. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship. And the Lord heard everything they said. Just like dad in the front seat. I heard that. I heard that. We're gonna pull over, we're gonna deal with that. Y'all get out of the car right now. Like that's the reality. So three weeks, three days, they go from obeying to complaining. From being excited to being entitled. And this will begin a very long journey for something that should be a very short road actually. Like I said, it should only take two to three weeks. It's going to take them four decades in the making. And yet I can't help but kind of close out by thinking that's the essence of this life that we live, too. Uh, like I said at the beginning, right? Uh, ever since we were expelled from Eden, we've been in the wilderness, right? Cast out to the east, cast out into the desert of life where it's hard, where there's thorns and thistles and challenge and relational breakdown and differences of opinion and friction between the nations and you name it, it's all there, right? So life is lived in the wilderness, but God's like, in the wilderness, I will come to meet you. In the deserts of your life, I will come to meet you. In the hardships and challenges that you're facing, I will come to meet you. I will dwell with you. I will guide you if you let me. If you respond to me, if you go where I lead, I will use you, bless you, strengthen you. I will heal you. I will better you. But if you decide you're going to complain, you're going to resist, you're going to go your own way, do your own thing, man, I will let you, but it will hurt you. See, this journey through numbers is going to remind us that God refines and refreshes and releases in the wilderness if we absorb it, if we seek him and we lean into him as our center and as our leader. Now, right now, I just want us to bow our heads. And as we do, I want to give us a layered challenge. There, there's certainly some of us in this room or watching online and our our disposition is that we go, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. But maybe you feel the in the wilderness thing at some kind of level in your life. Maybe you feel like I'm out in the wilderness and God seems distant. He doesn't seem central in leading. Others are like, no, I sense his presence and guidance and I feel great about that. Man, for those who are in the good space out there in the wilderness, awesome. For those who are in the rough space, I'm going to pray for you. Because I know what it's like to be in that space. And there can be all kinds of things that create that space, right? It could be life circumstances, spiritual dryness, uh, poor decisions, whatever it is. But God wants to meet us in the wilderness, just as he did Israel. 
Now, there's others that may be watching or in here this morning, and you're like, I'm not a Christian, and I feel like life has been a desert. It's been kitty litter and coyotes for a long time, and I need something different. I want God to be center. I want God to be guide. If, if that's your heart and that's your prayer, uh, today is your day to make that your prayer and say, hey, I, I want to follow Jesus. I, I want to take on this, not just the label of a Christian, I want to take on the ethos, the heart, the, the, the disposition of what it means to really follow Christ in an authentic and grace-filled way. If you make that your prayer where you just go, God, I, 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 I've been astray, I've done life by my own rules, and I want to follow you, rescue me, save me, change me. I know I've sinned, and you are the solution. Your cross, Jesus, your resurrection was the solution. You make that your prayer your way, he brings you into the family. And we would love to know if you've made that decision today. After I'm done praying, you'll see a number on the screen. You can text to that, or on our app, there's a tile, and you can tap, tap that tile and fill that out and let us know that's the decision you made. Because as one who has been in the desert without Jesus, I know it's way better to be in the desert with Jesus. And I pray that that is the prayer that you make today. Jesus, for all of us, we know that life can be hard. We know that there are many lessons to be learned. We know that wisdom only comes probably through hardship as the chief vehicle. But I pray that as we're going through numbers, we parallel that to our own lives and the hardships we face, the journeys that we take, the fact that sometimes those journeys are easy, sometimes those journeys are hard. And that in all of it, we will long for you, look to you, and love you that we will strive, hunger, and thirst for you to be at the center of our lives as you were at the center of the camp, that you'd be leading our lives just as you led them as a people, that that would be true for us as a church, and that would be true for us as individuals. And so, Jesus, we thank you, we look to you, we love you, and we need you. In your good and gracious name, amen.